so good to be here this morning uh, to proclaim the gospel because the gospel is the greatest message of all time has the power to transform lives not just individually but whole communities can be transformed by the power of the gospel when souls are one for Jesus and last week I love that we got to hear a gospel got to hear a gospel message from our brother Stephen from NTM he gave that powerful sermon about John the Baptist and his ministry a man who was not the Messiah but a man who is pointing to the long-awaited Messiah and his sermon finished on those powerful words in verse 29 a verse that Spurgeon once said is the epitome of the whole gospel of God in just a few syllables behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But as God would have it, I'm here today to also preach from verse 29. And to be fair, it's not a bad verse to preach twice. In fact, as we'll see from today's passage, it's exactly what John the Baptist did. For he preached those powerful words, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He preached them twice. So good, he had to preach them twice. So without further ado, let's get into our passage. And as Paul has mentioned, we're in John chapter 1 and from verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. John, as we heard last week, was a voice. He was a voice in the wilderness and he was pointing towards and proclaiming the word, the word of God. And I love that concept, the voice proclaiming the word. This is the word as we read in John 1.1, is the word who was in the beginning with God, who was God, and is now God in the flesh. He's walking as the spotless lamb in front of his people, dwelling amongst his people. And John the Baptist is pointing at him and he's saying, behold, this lamb of God. And this is the testimony of John the Baptist. However, it was only recently that John even recognized Jesus as the Messiah. As we read in his witness account in verse 32, it says, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Approximately 40 days ago, John baptized Jesus. And since then, he's been going around saying, turn away from your sins, for the Son of God is here. And I can imagine people going up to John and saying, well, where is this Messiah you speak of? We cannot see him. Because as we know, after John baptized Jesus, Jesus went into the, devil, uh, went into the desert and he was tempted by the devil for 40 days and for 40 nights. During this time, Satan tempted Jesus with sin, but, but Jesus never yielded to sin. Only Jesus could live a sinless life. For he was God incarnate, God in the flesh. 
fully man and fully God. He was a sinless, spotless lamb. And I love this moment in our passage, and I can just imagine John's excitement as he sees Jesus returning from the wilderness, standing there for all to see. And John sees him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, this is he. This is the one who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is here. As we know uh, from Daniel's sermon, he gave that illustration of somebody coming home to their family and the family not recognizing him. How sad that must feel to come to your own and for them not to see you. And that's captured in verse 11. It says, the people didn't recognize him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract people to him. Nothing in his appearance that people should desire him as it was foretold in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2. Yet here he was and people still couldn't recognize him. John needed to point him out. He needed to say, behold him. This is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And I wonder what the people thought when they heard John proclaim these words and they looked across at Jesus, when they looked into his face. I wonder what came into their minds. Did they understand what John meant when he said, the Lamb of God? Perhaps they thought of the Lamb that was sacrificed by Abraham so that his son could go free. Perhaps they thought of the Passover lamb, killed so that the Israelites could be set free from their captivity and slavery in Egypt. Perhaps they thought of the lambs sacrificed at the temple day and night, sacrificed for the sins of Israel. Or perhaps they thought of the lamb that was prophesied by Isaiah in 53, chapter 53, the lamb that was prophesied to to carry the punishment of all sinners. We can't be sure which lands came to mind when John said the Lamb of God, but we know that there's one thing that all these lambs had in common. They were sacrificed to deliver people from slavery and set them free from sin. All these lambs were pointers. They were pointing towards, they were prophecies of this one Jesus the one whom John is pointing to at this moment and is the final lamb, the final, perfect, sinless, spotless lamb, the one who would deliver the world from their sins and the punishment of sin. And all I can say to you this morning is, behold that lamb of God. Do you know Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? Have you beheld him? He stands here this morning just as he stood in front of John and the crowds that day. In the words of Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand. I stand at the door and I knock. Should any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him. Jesus stands. And he doesn't just stand and wait. He stands and he knocks. He calls. Jesus calls people to to himself, and this is grace upon grace. There is nothing we have done, done to deserve this. There is nothing we have done to earn this. And yet he stands and knocks for each one of us. 
You know, if you stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, you cannot help but feel the holiness of God. And compared to this holy, holy, holy God, we are but wretched sinners. We are but sinful creatures compared to this holy God. We're like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he beholds the glory of God. He falls to his face and he says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man who is lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Jesus is the Lamb of God who died on the cross for the sins of the world. And what happened on that cross was of cosmic importance. Because an atonement took place, those who receive Christ, Christ who pay for their sins, are reconciled to a holy, holy God. God, their creator. Behold the Lamb of God who was slain for your sins and for mine. He was the final sacrifice offered to pay the demands of God's justice. God's holy, righteous justice. When you realize that Jesus has paid the penalties for your sin, who has bore your sin, and not only took your sin upon himself, but he took away your sin. He took away your sin. That he satisfied God's holy, righteous justice. The Lamb of God. When you realize this, that you get to spend an eternity with him in heaven. And that you don't have to spend eternity away from him in hell. Then you will gladly proclaim those words, Behold the Lamb of God. Nothing else will give your mind satisfaction. Nothing else in this world could give you peace. Only the Lamb of God. And you must know him for yourself. You must believe in him for yourself because he alone will take away your sin. You know, we cannot pass on to others which we do not possess ourselves. If you know this Jesus, you will be like John the Baptist. You will be like John the Baptist and you will say to other people, behold the Lamb of God, for he has taken away the sin of the world. He's taken away my sin and he's taken away yours. Unfortunately, not everybody accepts this message. Countless people will reject Jesus Christ. And on judgment day, they will have to answer to a holy, holy, holy God. Are you willing to bear your own sins? Or will you be like me and be like John and point to the one, the Lamb of God who took away your sins? Will you point to him and say he did it all, he paid the price for my sin? We should never be tired of proclaiming this good news, this gospel news. And John is the perfect example. I want us to look at John the Baptist's example, how he proclaims the gospel news in verse 35. Because the next day, despite nobody responding to this message, the day before, nobody looked, everybody had the opportunity to look at the Lamb of God full in the face and nobody responded to the Bapt uh, John the Baptist. And so he says again when he sees him, Behold the Lamb of God. 
Without the crowds around him, John proclaims the same message he'd given the day before. Behold the Lamb of God. Matthew Henry once said, The doctrine of Christ's sacrifice for taking away the sin of the world ought especially to be insisted upon by all good ministers. Christ, the Lamb of God, Christ and him crucified. That's all we have to preach. The greatest message of all time. Christ crucified for your sins. Christ crucified for my sins. Crucified for the sins of the world. And if you think I sound like a broken record, or if, this, if you're getting tired of the gospel message, or if this is the first time you've come to LBC today and you expect to hear something else, or you expect to see fog machines or lights or politics or jokes or anecdotes or spectaculars, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place because we preach the only thing that we know and that is Christ crucified for our sins. Behold the Lamb of God, behold him. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Have you seen him? Do you recognize him? Do you know him? If you do not know him, make today the day that you chose to follow Jesus. Make today the day that you chose to say, I am forgiven because he died for my sins. He loved me so much that he died for my sins. This one, this one, this Lamb of God, this Jesus, he saved me. Of that being said in verse 29, out of the way, what a great verse. <laughs> We're moving on. And we get to observe in real time that, that, incredible, that incredible time when people started to respond to John's message. People came to know and follow Jesus for themselves, and we get to see that in the Bible right now. And I want you to notice something quite extraordinary. But while the message is the same for everybody, behold the Lamb of God, not everybody will respond to him and come to him in the same way. We all have a unique personal testimony and a unique personal calling from Jesus Christ. So let's look at the, uh, the calling of Jesus and the first two disciples in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. There's a celebration in heaven when two sinners are saved by God, saved by the gospel. We're told later on that one of the disciples is Andrew. The other disciple is believed to be John, the writer of this gospel, not to be confused with John the Baptist. These two people who were formerly disciples of John the Baptist leave their teacher and they go off and they go to follow Jesus, just as John the Baptist would have wanted them to do. And in verse 38, Jesus turns to them, uh, sees them following him, and, they, and he says to them, What are you seeking? What are you seeking? I love this. This is the first words of Jesus' disciples uh, to his disciples. What are you seeking? It's the same question he asks of each one of us this morning. What are you seeking? 
Hallelujah, Jesus, praise God. Are you seeking the forgiveness of sins? You will find it only in Jesus. Are you seeking peace? You will find it only in Jesus. Are you seeking rest? You will find it only in Jesus. Are you seeking eternal life in heaven? You will find it only in Jesus. Whenever we come to Jesus, whether it's for the first time or whether it's uh, whether we're entering into that familiar, wonderful fellowship with our Lord Jesus, we should be ready to ask the question that he poses, what are you seeking? The second half of verse 38 says, the two men said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Notice the disciples when asked, what are you seeking? Say, well, where are you staying? This isn't a casual question, casual uh, commitment, is it? It's not a dip in the toe. It's a serious commitment to go and follow Jesus. They want more of him. They want to learn from him. They call him rabbi, which we're told means teacher. A rabbi was a teacher of the Mosaic law and scriptures. I couldn't think of a better teacher to teach me about the Bible than the one in which the whole Bible points to and teaches about. <laughs> so the disciples ask, where are you staying? And to answer them, Jesus says, come and you will see. Can you imagine that invitation? Would you want to follow Jesus? Would you want to spend more time with him to see where he's staying? The answer is yes. Then I would encourage you this morning, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not yet a Christian, ask Jesus, can I follow you? Could I spend more time with you? It's an open invitation that he gives to us. Sometimes my mind gets carried away and I like to think of things like, I wonder what it would have been like to stay with Jesus. I wonder what his dwelling places were like. I wonder what they spoke about. What did Jesus teach them? What did they eat? Did they sing? Did they laugh? We don't know the answers, but, but someday we will. Yes, amen. And this was surely a special opportunity for John and Andrew. Can you imagine it? A special time also for Jesus. We were told in verse 11, his people did not receive him. And yet here he is with two people who did receive him, who loved him and who, who Jesus loved back. Two people who loved and belonged to him. It did John and Andrew the world of good to spend time with Jesus because from this time forward, they become disciples of Jesus. They become his followers. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. Peter. 
I think the example of Andrew in this passage is a real encouragement, especially to somebody like me, who's a bit of evangelist at heart. The first thing he does is he goes, after spending time with Jesus, the first thing he does is go and find his brother Simon. And he brings him to Christ and says, we've found the Messiah, come, follow. Now most people know the story of Simon. Simon who became Peter, the hot-headed fisherman, the guy who chopped a bloke's ear off. But Simon who became Peter, who went to become the Apostle Peter, arguably the greatest preacher of all time. In his first sermon, he preached at Pentecost. 3,000 souls came to Christ. In his second sermon in the portico at the temple, 5,000 souls. What an incredible preaching ministry Peter had. But we mustn't underestimate Andrew's involvement. Because it's Andrew who brought Peter to Christ. And without Andrew's ministry of bringing, there wouldn't have been Peter's ministry of preaching. You know, we can't all be like Peter. We can't all have a preaching ministry which reaches thousands and thousands of people. But we can all be like Andrew, can't we? We can all bring people to Christ. We can all bring our friends, our loved ones, people who are searching for something. I want to encourage each one of you in this room who is an Andrew, and I know there's a few. Don't stop doing what you're doing. Don't stop being an Andrew. Your ministry is so profound. It's so influential. Don't stop being an Andrew. Verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So then we have four disciples. We have Andrew, John, Peter and Philip. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, a town which literally means house of fishing. It was a small fisherman's town, and it's likely that Philip must have known Andrew and Peter, because if you've grown up in a small town, you know that everybody knows each other's business. And as is common in small towns, people hang out together. And I just love this, this, this thought of these, these fishermen. These fishermen and what they will go on to do, what they will go on to see, what they'll go on to witness, how they will help change the lives and change the world in their obedience to Jesus Christ. And notice the difference with, Pete, with Philip in this instance, though. Philip didn't so much as find Jesus, rather Jesus came and found him. Philip, having met Jesus, then goes on to tell somebody else. It's like a chain reaction. Verse 45 says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote of, wrote of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now I feel a little bit sorry for poor Philip here. Despite his good intentions, he gets it a little bit wrong, doesn't he? He says, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You know, he makes a slight mistake in his evangelizing to Nathaniel here. 
because we know that this is Jesus of Bethlehem, son of God. It doesn't sound the same, does it? Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathaniel was like, well, who is this guy? Who are you talking about? Nathaniel would have known his scriptures. He was a searching man. He would have known that the prophet Micah was talking about Bethlehem, the city of David, not Nazareth. And besides, what good can come out of Nazareth? It was a bit of a dump. But here, I love how Philip's young faith just does him a massive service. Instead of arguing with Nathaniel, instead of trying to convince him, trying to win an argument, he simply says, come and see, come and see. And I think this response models the perfect way for most Christians to evangelize. We just come and see. Instead of getting drawn into an argument, we should go out of our way to encourage people to just come and see. Come and behold him. Remember when my wife and I, we, when we went to church for the first time, we went with a Christian friend who was looking for a church in Lincoln. She'd been out of church for a good few years. She was nervous about going to church again. So she said, would you come along with us? And so we said yes. We said yes really for two reasons. A, because she was a really good friend of ours. But B, because our daughter Isabel had been banging on for years. I want to go to church. <laughs> so we thought we killed two birds with one stone. So we ended up going to this church service. I can remember on the, on the way there in the weeks to come into this service, we'd be asking our friend loads of questions like, you actually believe in Jesus? You believe in things like angels? Do you believe there was an ark? I couldn't get my head around it. I was an atheist, really. And I can remember she would just kind of, bless her, she would just kind of laugh and say, yeah, yeah, I believe in these things. And so when we got to the church service, I had, I had a, an incredible time. I was fascinated by the people. I was like, what's so different about these people? What's so different about these Christians? They were so friendly, so welcoming. And at the end of the service, one of the welcome team came up to me and my wife and they said, we've got a course coming up. Would you like to go to it? It's a course where you can ask any question about faith, about Jesus. Um, there's a part of me that really wanted to go because I loved asking the difficult questions and trying to see Christians squirm a little bit. And they said, there's loads of food, there's coffee, you know, please come along. And I looked at Zoe and I, I can remember us saying, I don't think we can go. We've got kids. It's in the middle of the week. We, we can't go. And our Christian friend who was looking for a church just said, no, please, please go. I'll look after the kids. I'll look after the kids. I'll look after the kids so you can spend time with Zoe and then you can go to this course and see how you get on. I mean, I was an atheist at that time. And that friend wasn't the greatest apologist ever. She didn't know her scriptures inside out. She didn't have a church that she was going to properly at that time. And yet she just wanted me and Zoe to come and see. Come and see Jesus. And she went out of her way so that we could do so. I just want to extend that invitation out to you all today. Why don't you find somebody 
and invite them to come and see Jesus. We're thinking about starting another course soon for those who don't yet know Jesus. And you can say to them, there will be food. You can say to them, there'll be opportunities to ask the most difficult questions. You could even say to them, I will look after the kids. You never know what your personal ministry and witness to other people will do. In verse 47, in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and Jesus said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I don't think Jesus was trying to flatter Nathanael when he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Jesus doesn't do flattery. Rather, he was simply acknowledging Nathanael as an upright man, a man who had been searching for God. In an age of twisted Pharisees and corrupt temple preachers and priests, here was an Israelite who was sitting under the fig tree. To sit under a fig tree was a Jewish tradition or saying, which meant that one was thinking about, contemplating, searching for God, somebody who was reading the scriptures, somebody who was meditating on God's word. Nathaniel was a searching man, a man who wanted to open the door to God, but he didn't yet know Jesus. And Nathaniel's coming to Christ is quite different from the other four disciples in a way. And I think he represents those of us today who've been on a spiritual journey, those of us who are drawn to God, but we just don't yet know Jesus. And I love Nathaniel's reaction here. Look at it. When in verse 49, when Jesus speaks to him, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Whatever Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, Jesus had his eye on him. Jesus saw him. Jesus, who could see all things, who could be in any place, who knew all things, had his eye on Nathanael before Philip had even called. And Jesus does the same today. We've heard those words earlier in in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Jesus meets us where we are. He calls us. And when you understand this, when you understand that Jesus has chosen you, that all along he could see you in your sin and that he was with you, you will wonder just like Nathaniel did. You are the son of God. Who else would know me the way that you do? Who else but the son of God? But Jesus says there's more to this story. Jesus says in verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. God has prepared many blessings for those who have faith in him. 
And despite Nathanael's faith and his reconciliation with a holy God, Jesus is literally saying to him, Nathanael, you've not seen anything yet. What I'm going to do will astound you. What I'm going to do is going to be bigger than anything that you can ever imagine. Jesus is referencing an incident in Jacob's life. Jacob from Genesis. Saying, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's a reference to Jacob's dream. as a dream about a ladder. He sees angels coming up and down from heaven. And Jesus is saying that he is the ladder. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. Jesus is the person who brings God to people and people to God. And this is something that is bigger than any of us can imagine. What glorious riches. What glorious grace. And I urge you, LBC, and friends who do not yet know Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus has come to make a way for you to enter into his presence, to enter into the presence of God and to be reconciled to your creator. Come and see him. Come and follow him and you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that often we do not have the words to say. We recognize that no human mind could ever conceive, ever invent this gospel message. Blessed are you, Lord. We praise you, we thank you, our Lamb of God, for opening the way and making it possible to be with our Creator. We stand as, as brothers and sisters, praising you and worshipping you in spirit and truth. Lord, should there be anyone in this room who does not yet know you as their Lamb of God, would you right now in the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of their heart? Speak to them. Speak to them so they may hear your call. Speak to them, that they may understand the love that you have for them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.